Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to a brand new edition of Freedom Books, Flowers in the Moon, the podcast brought to you each week by the Times Literary Supplement. My name is Stig Abel and I'm the editor of the TLS. Thea is still away and Lucy is now self-isolating. So I'm here with Features Editor, Minister of Fun and Devout Underpreparer for the podcast, Ros Deneen. Ros, hello. Hi. That's a, see, normally this is where Lucy says I've, I've unfairly ca- uh, characterised her, but I haven't. I think that was pretty fair. That's fair enough. <laughs> now, are you aware, Ros, as uh, a listener of the podcast, which I won't test you on, <laughs> that we do a food section at the beginning? So we started with Thea, because obviously Thea being a, a, an amazing foodie. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to find out her favourite type food in a whole variety of genres. Mm-hmm. So you are standing in for Thea. Favourite cake? Oh, God. Have, you, prepared, not... have you prepared an answer to this? <laughs> I thought you were changing the intro. No! No! <laughs> um, I don't really care about food. I mean, really? it's fine. You're I, the I same don't... as me. This is what I said to Thea. Yeah. I, are you one of these people, if someone could give you a pill yes. to eat three yes. times a day, you'd be like, yes. fine, I'm, I, I can live with that. Done. I'm the same. I said that to Thea once, and I thought it's she was going to punch. Yeah, I know. I thought she was going to, to punch me. Yeah. Uh, so you don't have even a favourite cake? No. Just I say mean, a cake. A carrot cake is fine. Carrot cake. <laughs> <laughs> no, but never... nobody, nobody who likes cake would say carrot cake. I carrot really cake. Eat cake. Well, that bit went well. I've got a lot of I've got high expectations for the rest of this podcast, Roz. Uh, here's the bit where I encourage you to subscribe to the TLS. Use this special offer code to get on board: the-tls.co.uk forward slash podcast offer. That's the-tls.co.uk forward slash podcast offer. It's the best price anywhere on the internet. Five issues for five pounds or five dollars. Coming up this week, we were going to rely on Lucy who speaks perfect French to help us consider the life and work of Georges Sand. Ros, do you speak French? I mean, no. <laughs> I, can, I, can, I can read a bit. I can read a bit. But I can't pronounce it. I had... Um, I probably said mispronounced. It's Georges Sand? 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 I think it's Sand. Okay, we'll um, I had a French conversation teacher who told us that if we didn't speak with a prison accent, there was no point in speaking it. So I got quite scared about speaking it. So I can read a lot. I can't say anything. That's very typical of France, generally, in my experience. You go to Italy and you stammer out something and they cuddle you, which is dangerous <laughs> for them now, but they do. In France, and they look like you've just sort of vomited on the floor a little bit. So yeah. that's, that's probably an authentic experience that you're taught there. Anyway, Ros and I, of course, are not experts, uh, but we are going to plough on regardless and be joined by a proper 
expert, the novelist Michelle Roberts, to consider the importance or otherwise of sans gender to her reputation. Also, as regular listeners to this show will know, I love a good historical novel, and Patrick O'Brien wrote lots of them. The Aubrey Maturin series of sea dog tales about life in the British Navy in the Napoleonic era. He should have reveled in all of the adulation, but he didn't. Francis Wilson has reviewed the latest biography of this tortured author, and Ada Lovelace is often wrongly heralded as one of those women from history we're all supposed to know nothing about, which is rubbish. She's really famous as a mathematician, the precursor to the computer programmer and mentioned all the time by everyone but did you know she once was involved in the writing of a gothic ghost story of course you didn't but miranda seymour did and she'll tell us more Patrick O'Brien had the happy distinction of being a genre writer beloved by literary writers. David Mamet once told me that the Aubrey Maturin series of novels constituted one of the great masterpieces of English literature. At the same time, O'Brien was also blessed with vast commercial success. His books sold wildly, especially in America, and he received an advance of $1.6 million for the 19th and 20th instalments of his salty seafaring tales. And as Francis Wilson notes, although O'Brien was often being compared to someone else, it was seldom to his disadvantage. His plots had the sophistication of John le Carre, his characters had the depth of Tolstoy, and his imagination had the immersive qualities of Proust and Joyce and so on. All of which compels the question, why was he so miserable about it all? Francis has reviewed the second volume of Nikolai Tolstoy's biography of O'Brien, in which Tolstoy himself, O'Brien's stepson, presents himself less as a biographer than a barrister in a case of defamation defending the writer from charges of cruelty, jealousy and dishonour. Does he succeed? Francis Wilson is here now. Francis, hello. Hello. People kind of love O'Brien, don't they? Is it right to sort of describe him as a literary person's guilty pleasure? He feels like a sort of respectable genre writer. Yes, I think that's right. I think that he's now been overtaken by uh, Bahiru Mantel, And so, you know, looking at my copy here of Master of Commander, it says on the front, the greatest historical novelist of all time. I think we can now say the second greatest historical novelist of all time. He doesn't, he can't hold a candle to Mantell. Oh really? We're saying that now. That's that's over, is it? That you you've you've weighed them in the balance, and that's that's. Oh, absolutely, yes. I mean, she has. I mean, if he he's middle brow. And it shows when you oh, read him next to Mantel. I'm Francis, sorry, but I'm what do you mean say... by middle? I love, I love knocking middle brow things. You <laughs> straight, straight in. Because yeah. um, um, why is he middle? Because they're both in Merck. I've just been rereading Wolf Hall and Bring Up the Bodies um, for the new one, and it seems to me they're both immersive, and that's a point of comparison. But he's not stylish. The thing that strikes me most about Mantel rereading it, it's kind of almost aggressively stylish, particularly the second one. I'm sure the third one will be the same. That it's, yes. it's very, it's pointedly stylish in a way that perhaps O'Brien isn't, and he isn't even recognised to be. He's seen as literary, but not particularly beautifully, beautifully written. I think. Well, I don't know. I think that I mean he has been excessively, and I stress excessively, praised for his prose style. He is seen as having this, um, as having style, as having these kind of beautiful, lovely kind of languid sentences. I don't see it myself. I I think that his, uh, his popularity is based entirely on what is 
called Authenticity. He gets all the details right, and it's a kind of train spottersy thing. And also, it's a pleasure, I think, reading him. So I've read maybe ten of them, and I like them. But I'm the sort of person if I'd love them, I would have read all yeah. twenty of them. I've read. You know, there are some authors I've read twenty of all. You know, all their books, and I've read them in turn. There's a certain exotic pleasure of because he doesn't explain any of the terms he uses. Yes. So there's yes. a sort of thrill when I find this generally, you know, when experts are talking, like if I read in like an architecture magazine yes. or, and you don't quite know what people are talking about, yes. but you feel the, the sort of the frisson of authenticity. There is something in that, isn't there? The frisson of authenticity. Yeah, I think, I think that's right. But that doesn't make it literary. No, I think, no, I think it is a kind of guilty pleasure. I am, um, I am mystified by the comparisons with um, Proust and Joyce. I think comparisons actually that he made himself. Yeah, I mean, um, Proust and I, Joyce he is closer to Georgette Hare. Yeah, because he's but he's not because also he's not experimental in any way in the way that Proust and Joyce are. Not in any were. way. And no, this, these are. I mean, again, these are very solid. But I mean, one of the pleasures for me in them, they're very solid. They're very reliable. Of yes, and that's what a genre writer should be in some yes. respects. He was ashamed of being a genre writer. I mean, this came, he started this series late in life. He started it in the late 60s. Very funny to think about the 1960s and what was going on in the rest of the world. And Patrick O'Brien was writing about Nelson's Navy when otherwise people were reading, you know, Lady Chatterley. But um, I think he was embarrassed about having got um, fame and riches out of genre fiction. I think being a genre writer oh, would be the, would be the thing snob. I'd most want to be. He was a tiny-minded snob. We're going to get to a minute how little uh, you like him. He did. Before we get to that, <laughs> uh, he did translate one of my favourite books of all time, which is Papillon. Isn't that strange that he did that? Wow. Yes. So the book, version of Papillon I've got, I've mentioned on this podcast a lot how much I love Papillon. I got given it when I was 17 for Christmas and I finished it on Boxing Day. Didn't talk to my parents for a whole of Christmas Day. I just read Papillon. Have you ever read Papillon, Roz? Have you read it, Francis? No, I haven't. Oh, my God. You've both just go <laughs> off just go off and read it. Patrick O'Brien did Stop the translation. Now. And it's it's written by a, a prisoner. You're writing it down, Ros. Correctly so. Go off and, 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 and read it. Because it's written by a guy, uh, Henri Charrière, and he um, wrote it in exercise books by hand. And it's a story of him being sent to French Guyana for a murder he didn't commit, and then he escapes endlessly. Uh, and it's his life. And it's either true or not true, whether, depending on whether you believe it or not. But it's the most fast-paced, furious, archetypal prison novel ever. One of the great prison fictions. Uh, and Papillon uh, and um, uh, O'Brien translated it. Isn't that interesting? Uh, and uh, he also translated all of Simone de Beauvoir. A very, very strange combination. A man who had Why no sympathy think- with women at all. Not, not, they're not great women's characters in the books, that's probably fair to say. It's a very male world of Aubrey it is. Maturin. That was the world he knew and the world he liked. So very strange that he gave us English-speaking people to see Monde Beauvoir. Why do you think he chose that? Why did he do that? It was just put in his direction. Oh, OK. And if you're he translator, then, yeah, maybe... He was a superb translator. I yeah. mean, the Papillon, I mean, I don't know, I've not read the original France, French, but... It, the Papillon that I read was so easy to read, yeah. and I think he has a he has a facility. You couldn't write twenty books yes. consistently unless you had a beautiful facility for prose, can you? I mean, that that's seems... right. I mean, he writes so easily and um, fluently. No, yes, I, I, he's a wonderful translator. Okay, so this is the second volume of the biography by Nikolai Nikolai Tolstoy, who's his stepson. It come the heart of Patrick O'Brien's life is his big secret that was uncovered. Yes. Which is? Uh, he, 
complicated secrets. He changed his name from, um, from... He was called Richard Patrick Russ when he was born. He changed his name to O'Brien after he left his first wife in 1945 and he, uh, to, to run off with Nikolai Tolstoy's mother... Mary Tolstoy. They got married and then two weeks after marriage she changed his name to O'Brien. So it was not a nom de plume. He Before that he'd been writing as Patrick Russ and then he became Patrick O'Brien. And this was his big secret and it was uncovered by his first biographer, Dean King, who was who was a super fan, and he didn't like... Dean King didn't like what he uncovered. And this like, it was only in 2000, this, wasn't it? It was only in 2000, yeah. But this was... Dean King had started kind of sniffing around in 1998, and it made Patrick O'Brien's last two years, because Patrick O'Brien died in January 2000, just in the new millennium. It made his last years very uncomfortable and very paranoid. And it was then, it was then kind of uh, revealed that he'd that he'd changed his name, and he changed his name to a specifically Irish name, and he was very happy to be seen as an Irish toff. He hadn't any Irish blood in him at all. And what uh, what Patrick what Dean King suggested is that he changed his name um, because he left his first wife, and he wanted to break off all connection to the first wife, particularly the fact that he'd left the first wife with a dying baby. Their daughter, newly born daughter, had spina bifida, and she died shortly after um, O'Brien left her. And so he uh, so Dean King said that this was an act of um, an act of obliterating the past, cutting himself off. And then Nikolai Tolstoy, the, son, uh, the, the stepson, comes in and says he's trying to defend the honour of his stepfather. And he says, no, no, that would have been far too dishonourable. He changed his name in order to cut himself off from his own father, who was, who was a brute and a bully and beat him. And his childhood was so unhappy that he decided to go into his adult life with a new identity. And so he bases his whole book around a kind of Patrick O'Brien as the victim of a brutal father. This is the second second book of the the two volumes. Yes, the first volume um, describes the miserable childhood and the second volume describes the making of the, uh, the author that we know. Really, the thing that shocks me the most about all of this is that when, when Nikolai Tolstoy's mother wound off with Patrick... She lost custody of him, and yes. so, so she deprived Patrick O'Brien deprived the author of this book of a mother. Essentially, it's, it's such a very complicated it's way so to approach it. This book, I have to say, is the most fascinating biography I have ever read, and um, uh, bar none. And not because it's a good book; it's a really, really bad biography. But it is really, really interesting because it's it is. It's psychological chaos from beginning to end. The fact that the uh, the author is writing a life of the man who cuckolded his own father and, just as you say, Ros, deprived him of a mother until he was 20 years old. He didn't meet his mother until he was 20. He'd known her as a little boy, but when he finally met her at 20, he didn't even recognise her. And that first meeting, when when... Nikolai Tolstoy first met his mother with Patrick O'Brien. He uh, O'Brien was so offensive to him. 
was so rude. The meeting went so badly that he, he's, he admits in his book they would never have met again had his mother, not for the first and only time in her marriage to O'Brien, put her foot down and said, I have to have my son in my life. So why did he write this book? Well, isn't that interesting? Yeah. I mean, even though O'Brien behaved, I mean, just wretchedly, he seems like a dismal man to his own children, to both wives, to his stepson. This is a defence of his character that doesn't work. The harder Nikolai Tolstoy argues for Patrick O'Brien as being a kind of a noble character stroke and a victim, a victim of his father's bullying, the more the case collapses in on itself. And why does this matter? This matters because... Should this matter because this is the, in, the inevitable art versus artist argument. But one of the things you seem to blame O'Brien for is his characters represent the very best of a sort of chivalrous world of honour, and he doesn't. That's absolutely it, right. Is that fair, though, Francis? Because, mm. you know, bad people can write good books. Just because uh, Aubrey and Maturin have this, they have this rather wonderful Holmes-Watson relationship, and they do stand for something, sort of a male friendship and... Uh, and, a, and a kind of pursuit of the mind in, in a less enlightened age. Does it matter that you regard him as a cad, or even worse than cad, kind of a bully and a misery, and all of those things that you condemn for? Should you blame him more because he wrote books about good people? No, I think no. It's a very interesting one, isn't it? Because we don't mind our writers and artists being monsters. William Fever's life of um, Lucy and Freud did nothing to defend him, and I loved I loved the monster that came out of that book. No one ever tried to defend Byron. Shelley was possibly the worst husband on record. No one tried to defend him. You just assume that you know the greater the writer, the more appalling the domestic life. I don't think Patrick O'Brien's writing is good enough. <laughs> that's an interesting... That's the R. Kelly versus Michael Jackson argument, which is that they're both, they both did awful things, but you can forgive... And you can't forgive Michael Jackson, but you want to carry on listening to Michael Jackson, but you might not listen to because R. Kelly because, the, because yeah. the music's so good. Yes. And there's also a sense from your piece that Patrick O'Brien himself seemed to get a sense of identity... And and associate himself with these characters that he was writing. Yes, he he these were these were his ideal selves. I think. I mean, he very he very obviously had a kind of bifurcated sense of himself in um, in Aubrey and Maturin. There was one man. There was the 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 Irish the Irish Spanish side in Stephen and the kind of the bluff a noble Englishman in Jack. But I think, what just to answer your, um, your point, Stig, directly, I think the reason that this does matter, I think it matters for two reasons, actually. I think the reason it really does matter that he was, um, he was such an unpleasant man is because he writes sea stories. And we do expect, to use the term you used, a certain amount of chivalry from our sailors. And you do expect you know, people who go to sea are heroes. They have heroic lives. And so the fact that he... He's an author. Uh, he, that doesn't matter, does it? I think it, um, I think it matters because he pretended to his readers yeah. that... He was a man of the sea. He'd never been in a boat. He had no experience of ships at all. He pretended to his readers that he was Irish, even accepting an honorary degree from from Trinity College Dublin on 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 the grounds that he was Irish, at the same time as accepting an OBE on the grounds that he was English. He thought the OBE should actually have been a knighthood. 
So he was disappointed. I'm fascinated by, by how much he's wound you up, Francis. Because <laughs> you're because you are you're a very lovely person. But I get the feeling he really this this book has wound you up. But really, because O'Brien is because uh, he's not long out of the literary world. O'Brien really it, to me. Um, I didn't come across him till I was in my mid-twenties. He's already dead. And to me, he's almost as much of a relic as uh, the person who wrote Hornblower. Yes. You know, to, so, so to see, uh, see Forrester wrote Hornblower. Yes. So I feel very little emotional investment in Patrick O'Brien because he's kind of just a, a dead author. And he's written these books that I've, I enjoyed. Whereas for you, maybe because he was part, he, he was kind of part of a literary world that you're quite familiar with, that you kind of feel a bit cheated by him. I don't know why I'm so wound up by him either. And it's not, as I say, because I didn't enjoy the book. I loved this book, but I loved it like a car crash. You're not a fan of Patrick O'Brien either. So it's not as if you feel, you've, you know, you don't think I've, I've devoted years of my life to reading him and it turns out he's a cad and I feel cheated. I don't think no, no, that's right. No, I don't. I haven't devoted years of my life um, to reading him. I think he was just there's just something about his character that's so squalid, yeah. just so squalid. And he was a bully, and he was odious to his wives and odious to his children. Do you think Nikolai Tolstoy thinks that he's made a successful defence? I think he does. Yes. Do you think this is sort of redeemed? Because we live in a culture where we 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 probably do see victim. You know, we're maybe more willing to see monsters as victims now more than ever. Yes. And maybe that trans. And maybe there is a legitimate psychological case. If you had a terrible childhood, maybe you are destined to, or you're more likely to 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 reproduce that in your own adulthood. Do we, do we not? Part of the chaos of this book, though, is the fact that um, Nikolai Tolstoy rests his case on the fact that um, Patrick O'Brien had apparently a very difficult five years after his mother, his mother died when he was three and his father remarried five years later. And during those five years, uh, Tolstoy suggests that what happened to O'Brien was so... Vi- I mean, clearly something happened. But what happened was so vile and unspeakable that it scarred him for life. Now... O'Brien's own son cut himself off from O'Brien when... From the first marriage. Yes, from the first marriage. O'Brien's own son cut himself off at exactly the same point in his life that O'Brien cut himself off from his father. So we have two situations where a father and son have been... um, are, are no longer able to speak to each other. And Nikolai Tolstoy has no sympathy at all for the first son, and the reason that the first that that oh, that O'Brien's son cuts himself off from O'Brien is because he wants to revert to his own name, and you don't realise that this poor kid has had to change his name to O'Brien as well and go around pretending he's Irish, you know. So he wanted to be called Russ, and O'Brien was so appalled he cut him off. Do you think one of the things that's so riding about all of this is not necessarily Patrick O'Brien, but it's that Nikolai Tolstoy has written this enormous book, two volumes, trying to defend what he explains is indefensible? Yes, yes. And I think, I mean, two volumes, seriously? There isn't enough material for two volumes, and they're two volumes... I mean, they could have been, every page could have been cut down to a paragraph. There's way too much information in there. And also, he just goes off piece. I mean, he's arguing against himself, he repeats himself, then he completely contradicts himself. It's psychological chaos. Like you say, it's like watching a car crash. You can't stop I've enjoyed talking to you about it. You enjoyed reading it. Um, Should Roz read one of the books, the Patrick O'Brien books? 
Oh you, you, you've yes. Got, you've, got to read, you've both got to go and read Papillon. Okay, I promise you, yes. you'll love it. You'll be. You, you'll send me a message and, and be like, "Whoa, that's." Okay, yes. I promise you, you will. Will you go and read Patrick O'Brien? I don't think you will, Ros. You know. I I might. I could try. Which one should I start with? The I'd first start with one, Master yeah. and Commander. Okay. And I think just. I mean, it's very interesting to read after reading the mm. Nikolai Tolstoy life because what you get is, fant- is uh, Patrick O'Brien's fantasy life. This is civilized life. He didn't lead civilised life himself, but he describes one. And there's a sadness, a poignancy in that, isn't there? Always when people have to describe a life they wish Fantasy they had. Fantasy is angry. Yes, OK. Aren't you? You're not <laughs> yeah. sad, you're angry. Uh, we'll have to leave it there, alas. I think it's a very male book. That's the other thing. I wonder how many... This I'm grotesquely generalising. These Patrick O'Brien books feel like it will be a male coterie of admirers more than a Iris female. Iris Murdoch loved him. Oh, really? Yes. All right, I, I withdraw. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, let's see what Ros... Ros, if you like it, we'll say women like it. If you don't like it, we'll say it, it's, it's okay. for, for, for men. We're, we're very binary here. Uh, Francis Wilson, what a great pleasure talking to you. Thank you. <laughs> this is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. We're going to talk about a 19th century female writer who called herself George. She had unconventional domestic arrangements and wrote acclaimed novels about how women thought and felt. But our subject is not, as you might be guessing, George Eliot. This week we're talking about George Sand, arguably the most successful author in France in her time, but now remembered more for her private life than her work. And luckily we have with us the novelist and critic Michelle Roberts, who has reviewed the Pleiad edition of Sans Novels to discuss her work, life and afterlife. Michelle, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Um, 
Just to start us off, synth sound is much less well-known in the English-speaking world than in France. Could you tell us what sort of writer she was and when and how she gained fame and recognition? Sand was a writer who reinvented the French novel in the 19th century. Her first novel to be published under her name, Solo, is called Indiana, and it looks at questions of marriage as a form of domestic slavery at women's yearning for freedom in a both, both political and sexual sense. It looks at the oppression of black workers on an island such as the Ile Bourbon, now La Réunion. So Sand was immediately shooting to fame as, as a woman writer who was unafraid to tackle important issues. Of course, she wasn't immediately known to be a woman because she found it expedient to disguise her sexuality and indeed her family name. So there were reasons of class as well as gender. I think it wasn't just her subject that, that made her so instantly famous, but also the way she wrote. She has a very attractive style. It's passionate, free-flowing, it's very open. She circles around contentious issues such as sex, but then sort of dives you underneath the surface of the prose so that you suddenly realise what you're talking about is positions in bed or whether a woman's coming or not. She was a breath of fresh air um, in in a culture that, you know, France was torn by revolutions. There was major oppression of working people. Women had very, very few rights. Sand was was brave. She she stood up and said what she thought. And so, so she gained recognition and also um, a reputation. But can you talk to us about how charged that word is in in French reputation? French, like English, can be quite a sexist language. French more so because it is gendered. You know, nouns are either masculine or feminine. So the word reputation, which we might think of as neutral, réputation, in French it's quite sexed. Applied to a woman, it means her sexual reputation. So if a woman has a reputation, it means she's not a, a chaste or virtuous woman, she takes lovers, she's known to put herself around a bit. A man's reputation would be more for honour, for valour, for fighting in war, maybe for being very rich. Actually, I picked up on this in my teenage years, reading Georgia Hare, where the word is similarly used of ladies of dubious morals. So at what point in her career did she sort of come out as, a, as being female if she disguised herself as, as George for so long? I'm not quite clear how explicitly Georges Sand came out as female, it was more that I think information leaked out and it just mm. gradually became known. She was, of course, you know, given a lot of support by male friends and comrades in the publishing business. She was given a staff position on Le Figaro. She was the only woman columnist there. There were plenty of men prepared to give her support, but also to gossip about her. And as we know, men can gossip just as much as women can. That's part of the equality of the sexes. <laughs> so sooner or later it all became clear that that Sand was female. And then, of course, she did get into real trouble with certain sections of the literary world because of this reputation issue. Her reputation wasn't only for having many lovers, which she did, but for leaving her children behind in the family chateau, for supporting rebellions, revolts and revolutions, and for this marvellous capacity she had to always say what she thought. She really was not a coward, ever, and I think became quickly a heroine for many people for that reason. But was she seen as a woman 
by certain male authors, they couldn't see her as literary figure. She was seen as literary woman rather than just a, just a writer. That's right. 19th century France had very strict rules of gender, even though they were supposedly accompanied by great gallantry and delights and sexual freedoms if you were in the right social class. And once Georges Sand was known to be female, she was put into a box, a feminine box, um, a secondary box, a box in which... If you were in it, you were expected to only talk in a ladylike way about ladylike things and you were then despised for being feminine. If you jumped out of the box and spoke as a full human being, perhaps a sort of androgyme it was seen as in those days, you were a kind of monster. So San couldn't win. And what's so marvellous is that although she was facing all this harassment by certain sections of the literary world, I'm afraid mainly men, but obviously some women too, she bravely continued. Her books became bestsellers. She was a bestseller across Europe. And that's the wonderful paradox about her, that she couldn't be contained by those constrictions and rules around gender. She kept breaking through them. And she wanted to be... And she, I mean, she played with that herself. I mean, one of the things that when we read about her now... She dressed as a man sometimes. She was she smoked and she she was trying to she was happily transgressive, or was she yes, not? Yes, I think Sand enjoyed transgression. As a child, she cross dressed because it was easier for horse riding on the estate where she grew up. Later in Paris, when she moved there on her own, abandoning her children and family back in the chateau, the dreaded chateau, she cross dressed partly because it was cheaper. Women's clothes cost an enormous amount, not only to buy but to maintain. Secondly, because it was safer, walking home from the opera on her own at night, she didn't get sexually harassed or raped by men. And thirdly, yes, I think she was acting out and performing a masculine persona in order to test out how it felt not to be in a crinoline and the kind of mental crinoline of femininity. And this was a time as well, I found out today, that you had to apply for a police permit in 1800 if you wanted to wear men's clothing around Paris. You couldn't just... Yeah. There were certain well, certain reasons that you were allowed, but she did it without a permit. Here's the thing I don't understand then, Michelle, because in the Anglophone world, this period of French literature, there's Balzac, there's Zola, there's Flaubert, there's um, Maupassant, there's a load of people that we would now, if you're kind of interested in books, you've kind of read some of them, you've heard of them, they're figures of the sort of canon... And this female writer who is talking about issues, as you said at the beginning, which are really interesting, she's a very modern, fluid figure. She raises all sorts of issues that are very um, currently um, worth considering. And yet it feels like in this country, if you were to say Flaubert or Sand, everyone will have heard of Flaubert and no one will have heard of Sand. Well, that also did happen in France to some extent. She became a revered figure who appears on the syllabus for schoolchildren. She's not always um, the subject of PhD theses at universities. But I think what's happened here is that our canon, having been written by men, has seen realism produced by men and naturalism produced by men as the best kind of writing, the major sort of writing, the truest kind of writing. And so it has championed the, the people who if you like, refined and defined realism, like Flaubert and then Maupassant and, and Zola. What's lovely is Flaubert admired Sand greatly and they had marvellous tussles about writing, but there's no doubt that his kind of realism displaced Sand's more 
romantic, idealistic way of writing. And and in this country, I mean, it's we've had a similar kind of history. You can look at the way that the angry young men of the 50s and 60s, by definition, exclude women writers. And literary critics have always, until really the last 40 years, valued men's work more highly than women's. So I'm not a bit surprised, really, that Georges Sand did get relegated into a corner and, to some extent, ignored. But that's not been true for for thirty years. Um, perhaps she's back. Is she back in? Is she is she back? Well, not in France. Um, I still see the reading public in France a bit like ours. There's a a reading public which is perhaps a smaller world where people read an enormous amount and feel reading's incredibly important and love novels and that kind of reading public in France, as in England, I think, will have heard of Georges Sand and will read her novels and her wonderful travel writings as well. And then there's a much, much larger general public who, you know, are are given bestsellers to read, who are given books that publishers think are suitable for them. Read about school. I'm rather cynical, actually, about the way publishers operate. And so that, that kind of audience won't probably be reading Georges Sand. Yeah, the 19th century in England, in Britain, in English Anglophone texts, if you look at, if we do a list of the most widely commonly read 19th century novelists now, more than half would be women, would you? Yeah. That, that's <clears> kind but of they're also realists, lots of those writers yeah. that you refer to there. And I get the impression from what you're saying about Georges Sand is that, is there more resolution in her text? Is, it, is there more mythic quality operating? Yes, that's a really beautiful way of putting it, I think. What she does is start off with something that feels vaguely realist, like a married couple sitting by the fire in the chateau with a gun and a dog and a servant. And then there'll be a leap into the what if, and then another leap into, so this could happen, a more equitable form of love between men and women, a release from subjugation of black slaves working on sugar plantations, Georges Sand is not afraid to move towards the ideal. And that's probably why she has fallen out of fashion a bit, because our times aren't very idealistic. We we tend to like what we think of as brutal realism as well. And what should we read then? I mean, I'm always love doing this because um, we get to think of books that we've not read and we should read. I mean, there's three and a half thousand pages of this play edition, which which I think some people can listen to this podcast will go and read. Others will not will not be able to. In translation, though, I mean, is there a is there a one novel, one or two novels that you'd say go and go off and read these first? You've put your finger on it because there still aren't enough translations of Sand's work into English. Yeah. Quite recently, La Petite Fadette has been retranslated and published. That's worth reading. It's one of the so-called pastoral novels. Again, it's a way of writing sound off. Oh, they're just about peasants skipping around making hay in the countryside. Well, of course, La Petite Fadette is about incest, it's about violence, it's about the love between men, it's about the dawn of psychoanalysis invented by Fadette, so claims one of Sand's biographers. It's a great novel to begin with. I'd also suggest her book of travels, Lettres d'un voyageur, which is available in Penguin paperback in English translation. And that's delightful because Sand is again performing herself. She's um, pretending to be a young man. She's strutting around the Alps, having adventures, and she's writing letters to an imaginary friend. At the time, she was actually 
lounging around the Alps with one of her lovers, <laughs> who was the doctor in Venice who'd looked after her lover, Alfred de Musset, languishing with um, terrible diseases. And what does Sand do? Gets fed up with Musset, skips off with the doctor, travels the Alps. And writes, and writes something that we should now be reading. Yes. Unbelievable. Well, I, 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 it's such a great place. I, I love finding out books that we should go off and read. Michelle, what a great pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you both very, very much. Ada Lovelace is famous as the first computer programmer of sorts, Byron's daughter and one of the great female figures of the early 19th century. My daughter's class is named after her. She was also an invalid as a child, in which time she developed her skills as a mathematician and a writer. So imagine the excitement when Miranda Seymour discovered a short story seemingly written in Lovelace's hand when she was a teenager. And it was an exciting gothic yarn too. This is Miranda's words. Here are reproachful ghosts, a sorcerer's tricks, a fraternal battle for the hand of a beautiful girl and crowning an enticingly grisly climax with a familiar trope, the discovery of a skeleton mouldering in a well. Did Ada Lovelace really write that? Well, yes and no. Miranda Seymour is here to tell us more. Miranda, hello. Hello, lovely to be here. Now, I'm so excited because you genuinely have made a discovery... Tell us about how and what you discovered and we'll work out where to go from there. Well, what happened was that I was writing about Ada and her mother and I'd agreed to do a talk about Byron um, as a favour to somebody and in exchange the somebody who was a great friend with the archivist of the Murray archive, nothing to do with Ada at all, said, I think I've got a little surprise for you. John Murray, the publisher. Mm -hmm. And John Murray, the publisher, sold the whole enormous Murray archive to the National Library of Scotland. So it had all gone up there and it's still being catalogued. It's gigantic. So this lovely man, David McClay, said, I will send you a surprise. And he didn't actually know what it was. He just sent me this wonderful 20-page manuscript, which I immediately, because I did feel a bit like a detective here, I did know it was Ada's hand for sure. It was Ada's hand in pencil, which told me that it was when she was an invalid, paralysed on her bed as a very young girl from about 13 till 16. And being a detective, I worked out that you would not use ink when you were in bed because in those days, you'd have to use ink with an ink pen and the ink would have dripped all over Ada and all over her mother's bed linen and her mother was quite a stickler for perfection. So pencil it was. And the thing that I saw, I sincerely believed, as did David McClay, that this must be a story by Ada because I already knew she was tremendously imaginative and very proud of her imagination. She was very enthusiastic about her father, Byron, and kind of connected herself to him. She'd just been taken on a huge trip around Italy, and the whole story is set in Italy. And she'd been taken to all the places where Byron had been in Italy. So I thought more and more, this all fits. It's absolutely perfect. Ada is writing a story kind of in honour of her father and in memory of this trip. Everything fitted 
perfectly until I met a Schiller expert. And I'm one of those biographers, thank goodness, who talks to everybody. If I go into, I'd know, a thrift shop, the post office, wherever I'm forever talking about whatever I'm writing about. So I was... Hi, Miranda. Let me tell you about Ada Lovelace's story that I've got. You would be amazed. I find the most wonderful Robert Graves stuff simply through talking to a nice guy who, like me, was looking for coats in the charity shop. And he suddenly said, well, actually, I'm Robert Grace's cousin. (laughs) It's sort of like that. It's magic. So anyway, I was talking to this lady who turns out to be a Schiller expert, and she said she'd love a look at it because it sounded to her, she said, suspiciously, as though it might not be a story by Ada. And what it was, was in its way, academically, far more intriguing because it then opened up every kind of avenue to do with German, which was being taught at that time only as a language for um, women who were doing translations, women like, I know, George Eliot, Mary Wollstonecraft, who hadn't got much money, but not for young girls like Ada. Well, the Schiller expert was right. It was indeed a story from der Geisterseer. How did the Schiller expert... You say Ada Lovelace has written this ghost story, mm. goth, very gothic story, and the Schiller expert knew Schiller so well mm. that she said, well, that sounds like that a... That Schiller expert's for you. Oh completely, completely and you outside my provenance. Well, to be perfectly honest, I had never read The Ghost Seer before. I don't blame... But, I've never read The Ghost Seer by well, Schiller. Actually, I mean, this little story by Ada, as I thought, was gripping in itself. And then I thought, well, I better be a good girl and go off and read the rest of The Ghost Seer. And I read it, of course, as one does in the original version that Ada had used as her crib, which we might get you read it in into the original a bit. German. No. I read it in the oh, in. I was going to say that's incredible. I mean, yeah, no, it's still no, no. good. It's still good, Brad. No, I used the um, 1831 edition, which was the other really exciting thing that I knew that Ada clearly, when she was translating this wonderful little story, and that's a whole other kind of avenue of, of interest. Why was she doing this? Who was teaching her? Why was a very rich young girl, her mother was practically the richest woman in England, bothering to learn German? Well, certainly not so she could become a translator. What was the reason? And the reason... That's a kind of complicated and interesting thing. If we go back to the fact that Back in 1830, German was just not a language that that sort of young woman learned. I mean, even if you go back to Lady Jane Grey, when she was, I think, the greatest linguist ever, she learnt 15 languages, 12 languages by the age of 12. Well, Lady Jane Grey learnt um, Chaldee, Arabic, Hebrew, etc., etc., not German. Women... Women just didn't learn German. Family was mm-hmm. German. It's really, really strange. You've got the royal family, you've got all the Hanoverian kings sitting there, but people did not learn German unless they were doing it for translation to make a bit of money, like Mary Wollstonecraft, or this is where the Adelink comes in, or they came from Unitarian or dissenter families. Because if you weren't sort of completely paid up Christian and you didn't believe in, you know, the the spirit, etc., etc., you couldn't go to a normal school. And so anybody like, I know, Henry Crabb Robinson, people like that, 
who was really bright, went instead to Germany, where they were much more laid back about your religious beliefs and you would get the most wonderful education. The German educational system then was, I think, except for Scotland, about the best going. (laughs) So they all came back with this brilliant education. And the thing was that Lady Byron, Ada's mother, was a Unitarian. And Ada was a Unitarian. Later, her husband was a Unitarian. They were all very, very proud of it. And they mixed in these circles. So you then come a little bit closer to why Ada would be learning German. Because in this circle, it's cool to learn German. And this is where all the rather brilliant young women like um, Sarah Austin, who were doing translating, they were all coming from dissenting families. So, would it be an intellectual, would it be a thing to be intellectually proud of, do you think? In, in... It would. Now, the interesting other clue, which I completely misunderstood at the beginning, was that this little story had been found in the archive of Mary Somerville. And there was a little inscription at the beginning saying that Mary Somerville's um, son, Verance of Grieg, absolutely authorised this to be in Ada's handwriting. It was a story by Ada. He didn't, rather inconveniently for me, bother to say it was by Schiller, but he did say it was by Ada. So what was it doing in Mary Somerville's house? Well, trying to be a bit of a detective, I puzzled and puzzled, went back to Mary Somerville's memoirs and found out that Mary Somerville wrote that, to my mortification, I had never learnt German I was determined that my two daughters, Martha and Mary, should be the first to learn this language. And they were exactly the same age as Ada. The Somervilles became tremendous friends. Um, Mary Somerville was like a sort of second mother to Ada. It was her who introduced her to Charles Babbage and so on and so on. Well, there were two wonderful young women who came over from Frankfurt, I think, to teach the Somerville girls. And this is at exactly the time that Ada was struck down with paralysis and started to learn German. So that then made me think, ah, so the Somerville girls are coming in and teaching her. There are some rather touching little notes by Ada when she was first being forced to learn German by her mother. And she's saying, you know, I'm bursting into tears every day over my German grammar book. This is so hard. This is so difficult. And then she goes quiet. She doesn't complain about German anymore. She never mentions this at all. But she obviously gave it to Mary Somerville as a kind of, look what I did. Aren't I clever? I pulled it off, I think. So there were these two little girls coming, Mm. her contemporaries Mm. coming and teaching her German on her sickbed. Which actually... a lovely It's it's a delightful thought because the thought of... I mean, I got so fond of Ada when I was writing about her and she is such a, a quick, lively, energetic little girl and the thought of her being just literally confined to her bed for three years Mm. with slightly grim old ladies who were friends of her mother coming round and lecturing her on history and so on. And the whole thing is suddenly brightened up by these two very lively young girls who actually adored going dancing. They were very playful. They they weren't like Mary Somerville, who was far more serious than a great great mathematician. So one can then see Ada having a a much more fun time learning German. And us also to Frankenstein. Yeah, because uh, this via Schiller. So you know, people who who don't know Frankenstein is is conceived in a villa 
in Switzerland. Um, Byron's there, Mary Shelley's there, uh, Percy Shelley's there, and they're, they're telling ghost stories, and Mary Shelley conceives of Frankenstein. Um, and there is a connection, you think, between Frankenstein and the Schiller, which might suggest a connection between Ada and Mary Shelley. This had been my dream for about a year to find, actually longer than that, probably about three years, to find a connection between Mary Shelley and Ada. Because I knew, as you say, that, you know, that this wonderful story had been engendered at Lord Byron's villa and they'd all been reading German stories, although they'd been translated into French on that particular occasion. Mary Shelley never really bothered with German at all. Her mother did, but she didn't. So I've always, always been trying to find a way to demonstrate at least a knowledge and an interest. And even though Ada and Mary Shelley lived alongside each other in London for 30 years, I couldn't find any proof whatsoever that Ada had ever heard of Frankenstein, anything. But this actually is proof, which is so exciting because... When I was kind of documenting how Ada had done this and looking at the original, I did look at the original German a bit, then I looked at the translation she'd used, which is the key thing, and you could see definitely that at moments, I mean, poor Ada, who can blame her, she actually straight cribbed from the translation she was using. Well, the translation she was using was in the 1831 Coben and Bentley Standard Popular Edition volume, which had come out just about the year that Ada was reading this. And it was bound up, sorry, the Schiller, the first part of the Schiller novel, was bound up with, guess what, Frankenstein. And there is just no way, Jose, that Ada, lying in bed with nothing else to do, would have read the Schiller, done all this dutiful cribbing and all the rest of it, and actually missed out on the Frankenstein story, which with the very first time had that incredible introduction with it. Yep. The monstrous progeny preface. It's the first time the preface had ever appeared saying this was written at Lord Byron's villa. I mean, there is no way that Ada would not have been And so she would have known her dad was there when this was written. Yes, Mm. yes. And could she have contacted Mary Shelley? Is it possible that she then goes, I've just read Frankenstein and... She could, no, let me think, the dates. Um, Yes, she could, because by that time, um, Shelley's died in 1822, Mary Shelley came back in 1823, Frankenstein was put on as a play. I'd love to imagine that Ada went and saw presumption. Maybe she did. Who knows? But by 1831, or let's give Ada time to get off her sickbed, 1833, Ada's off her sickbed and indeed running around like nobody's business, eloping here and learning to ride and goodness knows what. Anyway, she's having a very, very lively life. Yeah, she definitely could have gone and surely Mary, Mary Shelley, Shelley, I presume Mary Shelley would, would, would have an interest in talking to the daughter of, of, of Byron. Mary, Mary Shelley was captivated by Byron. She wrote in her journals endlessly about Byron. And on the day he died, she stood at her window watching the funeral procession go past and wrote very movingly about it and her memories of Albert, as they called him. So it, it all connects. That's one, of those, that's one of those events, isn't it? Villa Diodati, isn't it? The place where they... And that, that, Such a cause, story. Because the doctor comes up with a vampire story based mm-hmm. on Byron, which in turn influences Bram Stoker's Dracula, Why doesn't it? And I, th- I think 
Therefore, in one night in a Swiss villa, Frankenstein and Dracula are created. Two of the great sort of creations of, 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 of modern literature. It's that, an amazing that, thought. That's just an amazing thought that they, they did that. And just... also another thing I love on that particular line is that when Frankenstein and Dracula were first put on, it was at the Lyceum Theatre in London and I think they were put on um, running alternate nights or something like that, but definitely they were playing in the same theatre. And it comes from one... So, yeah. yeah, they must have known. I cannot believe they, they that Ada Lovelace and Mary don't go and hang out. For... I, I got so obsessed that I was actually drawing up lists of all Mary Shelley's friends and all Ada Lovelace's yeah. friends. And I mean, it's the same list. Yeah, yeah. all the same. They met people. for a. I think we can. In, call, they met for a drink, don't you think? In Jeanette Winterson's latest novel, Frankenstein, yeah. they meet. And it's I must read that. It, you must read that. It's is it a good yeah. novel? It's fantastic. Is yeah. it really? Wonderful. But they I do should. meet there, well, at least. Well, I'm glad <laughs> if, if anybody should have made it happen, it would be Jeanette Winterson. Exactly. And it sounds perfect. <laughs> well, let's leave it there. Let's leave it with a... a, a oh, and before we do, I just want to... You can settle this once and for all, man. It does infuriate me, this. Ada Lovelace is known for all various things now, but she's often wrongly called a forgotten woman. Because often people try to find flog books about, it. and those those tiresome publishing trends of saying, "Here are ten women you never knew from from history," but people do know her, surely, don't they? In, in Nottingham, where I come, we've even got the Ada tram, so she can't be that forgotten. No. They're always desperately trying to claim that Ada was born in Nottingham, which she was not. Who <laughs> are they? Well, but they do no, the same with Robin Hood. I, I would say that the the fact of the matter is, which I love, that older people often look pretty blank about Ada Lovelace, but if you go to anybody under the age of 30, yeah. they will assuredly have heard of her, well, and especially go and under the age of 10. But actually, if you talk to a class of little girls, I hope that doesn't sound too rude, but I talk to like 12-year-olds, and they've actually invited me to come and talk to talk about Ada. They are asking because yeah. Ada is their heroine. And there are masses of books which are directed at that audience and using Ada as an inspiration of, you know, she's the lead rebel girl now, so that's, that's right, pretty hard. Right. It's been hugely inspiring talking to you as well, Miranda. Thank you so much for coming in. Oh, complete delight. Thank you. Uh, that's all we have time for this week. Our thanks go to Michelle Roberts, Miranda Seymour and Francis Wilson. Thank you to you, Ros, for stepping in. Pleasure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you prepared... Pretty much all right, I, I thought. I got away with it. Well done. <laughs> uh, uh, get subscribing to the TLS this week. Despite Brexit, we celebrate Europhilia with more foreign books than you'd wave a patriotic stick at. French, German, Austrian, Hungarian, Spanish, Swedish, and on and on. Next week, we go back 100 years to celebrate the 1920s. You won't want to miss that. Until then, from Ros and from me, goodbye. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. 
Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.